0: The History of Literature Podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Episode 28, Ramayana. Today on the show, we're going to be looking at what is perhaps the greatest living epic in the world. I'll explain what I mean by living epic as we go. But first, many thanks to those of you who have reached out to me since our last episode, or episodes, I should say, the two-part episode on the Upanishads. There are a lot of seekers out there just like me. I'm glad to know that I'm not the only one with this uneasy relationship with literature. Can you be an agnostic regarding literature? I think you can. I think you can. One listener described her experience listening to the podcast as a thrill, and she talked about the importance of making connections in the internet age. I couldn't agree more. I've been thinking about connections a lot. Connections of all kinds. There are the connections made through the internet, through my writing, through my participation in social media, and through this podcast. There's never been anything like it, people, like the age we live in now. From a quantitative standpoint, we are more connected now as a human species than we have ever been. I just saw a documentary called Twinsters, where two children had been given up for adoption 25 years ago in Korea. One girl grew up in America, the other in France, Some friends then saw the videos online a couple of years ago and began messaging around, noticing how much the two looked like one another. And then the twins discovered each other. And yes, there they are, actually twins. There's so much loneliness and sadness inside all of us. We are all a microcosm of the world, as we saw last time. And our sadness fills the world like a a vast, empty ocean being filled with sadness and loss and negativity and grief. The world is overloaded with heaviness and longing and feelings of absence, and one of the girls really felt this. She had grown up as an only child in her adopted family, and she would feel lonely all the time, but she didn't know why. And she would tell her French mother this, and the French mother would invite other children over to play, to try to help. And then the girl still felt lonely. She told her mother, I don't want anyone else. I'm just lonely, and I don't know why. Well, I think this is why. She had a twin. She had that experience, those nine months together, and then nothing, no one. For 25 years, she lived with that absence. And then there's the birth mother. It's easy to say, oh, what a monster, a mother who gives up her children. Like she's the evil witch in the story. And the foster mothers and the adoptive mothers, those are the good ones, the good mothers. Those are the ones who saved the day. But that would be wrong. The girls certainly don't think that way. You should call them women, 25-year-olds. The women are happy and well-adjusted now as adults. But when they think of their birth mother, they're filled with sadness. They feel sorry for the birth mom. And isn't that the best way to feel? Isn't that what is probably the case? This isn't some rich woman so selfish that she just gave away two kids out of an absence of motherly feeling. This was an unmarried mom. Not a stretch to imagine that her family disapproved of her pregnancy. The birth father probably disappeared. The young woman felt humiliated, disgraced. The family was poor and she had shamed them and she had no one to help and no idea what to do, where to turn. Isn't that the most likely scenario? So, she gives up the babies and now when she refuses to see them, it's not because she doesn't want to give them her love. It's that she knows it will break her heart. She will not be able to face the emotions of seeing them. Her lifetime of repression, of compartmentalizing, of numbing herself and her emotions, all this will crack apart if she sees the two girls that she gave up. The women, the adopted girls, understand this. They write her a beautiful letter letting her know it's okay and they're okay and they want to thank her They don't blame her for her choices. They want to thank her for giving them the gift of life. It's a beautiful documentary. And here are the connections. They found each other because of the internet. And now with all this sadness and loneliness out there, they have each other. It's hard to face something like knowing that your mother gave you up for adoption. My eight-year-old had a hard time watching the movie, thinking through what it would mean for him. He demanded to know from my wife, his mother, that she would never do that. Even for these girls, who are women now, 25, and surrounded by friends and loved ones, it's a hard thing to accept. And now, they have each other. The world is a little less lonely. It was inspiring. So that's Connections. Here's another one. The documentary was funded as a Kickstarter project. More Connections. More Connections. And here's me connecting with you. I'm glad you're listening. But as I put in place my new studio, yes, I have moved. If you can hear a difference in the sound, still a little rough around the edges here. We're still moving in, but hopefully we'll get the kinks worked out soon. I love this new place. So as I help to put the studio into some kind of workable form, I have to work through some equipment issues. And people, it is so hard to buy the right connections. The right cable connections online. Amazon is so good at so many things. We take Amazon's search for granted just as we take Google search for granted. They're so good at what they do and it's frustrating beyond measure when there's something they're not good at. And getting the right cable to connect audio equipment, well, sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's maddening. And then you find one, you look at the page online, the product page, and you struggle. Is this the right connector on both ends? And does it have any kind of quality? How do you know? It has a few customer reviews, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands, five-star ratings, four, four-star ratings. How do you know? Do the customer reviews help? Well, sometimes it seems like they do. Sometimes it seems like that's more important than anything else. And then here's an Amazon review. That I encountered. It's for a connector that isn't made by Apple anymore. So there's an off-brand company making it. Some company that I've never heard of. And the review says, This cable connects as advertised. I used it twice. And both times it worked fine. No problems. Only two stars. Because when I left it plugged in, it melted and started on fire. Luckily, my husband was in the room when it happened. Okay, that's the customer reviews that I'm supposed to trust. That's two stars a product that was only used twice, and then it melted and started on fire. A five dollar cord melting and burning down your house, potentially, risking your husband's life. Who knows? Who knows how we put it out? I ask customer, what would earn one star? cord that didn't work and then caught fire? This is the problem. We're so desperate for connections. We credit anything at all that looks like even a little bit of a connection. We give it two stars just because it did the very minimum of connecting us up somehow. This problem isn't new. And here's where all this comes back around to literature. Literature is about connections. Literature is a way that humans satisfy their need for connection. They share myths and stories. They live in large groups thanks to their ability to invent shared ideas. And those ideas are communicated to one another through stories. And this is true not just for abstract groups like tribes or nations. It's true on a one-to-one, individual basis. E.M. Forster put it the best way in Howard's End. Only connect. That's a beautiful sentiment. For a long time, I thought it couldn't be improved. But now I know that it can. Only connect and don't melt and start a house fire. Okay, on to the Ramayana. one of the greatest works in the history of literature, the sweeping epic tale that takes place in India in prehistoric times. This is the India of rich forests, heroic kings, and a fluidity of gods and demigods and warriors with bows and arrows. It's also a love story, and there's a journey. And at the center of it all is Rama, the brave, strong, wise, dutiful hero, and his beloved, Sita, who is loyal, pure, and true. There are many other characters as well, and we'll get to them in a moment. You can find this book today in different translations. The primary author is generally considered to be the poet Valmiki, who is said to have composed the 24,000 Sanskrit verses in a stint of divine inspiration. The Sanskrit is widely regarded as beautiful, or so, so I'm told. Unfortunately, that isn't something I'm able to comment upon myself. I have found two solid translations. There is an enjoyable version by Ramesh Manon that's 600 or so pages of prose. I'll link to that on the website. And there's a briefer, shortened modern prose version that Penguin has out, a translation by R.K. Narayan, which is the one I'll be quoting from today. Now, we've looked at epics before on our journey through the history of literature. We saw Gilgamesh, and of course, we looked at Homer. We saw in those books how nations and nation building were at the heart of the epic form. How does one group of people come to rule over the other group of people? How do leaders ever gain the trust of the people they lead? What makes a good leader? Those are hallmarks of the epic form. And in ancient times, the answers are usually clear. They are the bold, the wise, the courageous, the fierce in battle. This is Rama. Rama impresses a king and wins his beloved daughter through a feat of strength. An enormous bow is rolled out, so large that no one can even lift it. Rama not only lifts it, he's able to draw the string and in fact breaks the bow with his strength. And in the rest of the poem, he shows his feats and his prowess in his adventures. He's a warrior, brave and strong, and that's enough to be king. But it's not all. If you remember from the Gilgamesh episode, Gilgamesh was also incredibly strong and brave, and he had to learn to tamp down his impulsiveness and his ferocity and focus his attention on his people. He had to learn that death would someday claim him, and that his only way of surviving it was through doing good things for his people, that that was the only form of immortality he could achieve. But before that could happen, he had to control his impulses. That was the dilemma faced by Gilgamesh a strong ruler whose strength can be a liability. Strength, warrior strength, and courage can lead to restlessness. During peacetime, strength and energy like that can be destructive, as Gilgamesh used to claim the women in his kingdom out of his restless, misdirected energy. Rama isn't like that. He's modest and humble. He's deferential to his father and his stepmother, and he's sensitive lowered by love when he first lays eyes on Sita. I'll give you a quick sense of the background, what what precedes the main narrative of the uh, Rama in exile. All the good stuff in this book comes at the beginning and end, at least in my opinion. There are some adventures in the middle when Rama's in exile, but the most compelling struggles are the ones at the beginning and the end. These are the most human struggles in Narayan's shortened modern prose version, he basically skims through the middle. Let's start with the beginning. Two stories intertwine here that set up the entire rest of the tale. One is about duty and leadership. The second is about love. Rama's father, Dasharat, is the king of Ayodhya. He has three wives and four sons. Rama is the eldest, the rightful heir to the throne. His mother is Dasharat's first wife. Dasharat's second wife is his favorite, although she's also the most conniving. She has a son named Bharat. There's also a third wife who has twin boys. One of these is Lakshmana. So the king has always loved his firecracker second wife, and at some point he promised her two favors. Before Rama, the beloved heir is named king, the second wife calls in her favors. First, She wants her son, Bharat, to be named king instead of Rama. Second, she wants Rama banished to the forest for 14 years. That's it. (laughs) That's all. You owe me two favors. Well, here they are. Your beloved son, the eldest, the rightful heir, will not become king. And he will have to go fend for himself in the forest for 14 years, where evil gods live, ready to kill him. Time to pay up. (laughs) I'm reminded of the time that my wife was pregnant with our first child. I made us a huge meal, Thai coconut curry with tofu and vegetables. We feasted because my wife was always starving in those days. And an hour after the meal, she said, hey, how about a snack? And I said, okay. And I started heading for the kitchen. What do you feel like having? And my wife said, how about chicken and spaghetti? This was an hour after we'd just eaten a full meal. And I said, really? And she said, why? What what had you been thinking? And I said, um, an apple. (laughs) That's what I imagined was going through Dasarat's mind. Something like that. Two favors? Those are your two favors? Well, what were you thinking? Um, a back rub, maybe? (laughs) Maybe. Bring you some tea in bed? Nope. She wants him to, to uh, kick his beloved son to the curb and put her kid on the throne. Keep your stupid apple. We're going for chicken and spaghetti. So here's where we see the values of the poem in action. Dasarat rails against the idea. He's furious. It's unjust. He's stricken by remorse and grief, but he's compelled. promise is a promise. And Rama, what does he do? He's just as dutiful. He gives up the throne and heads to the forest without complaint. A promise is a promise after all. He would never accept making his father break his word. And furthermore, he accepts the wishes of his stepmother because she is his elder as well. And as his stepmother, someone he feels compelled to obey, he accepts his fate and heads off into the forest with his half-brother, the loyal Lakshmana. What about the second wife? Is she pure evil? Maybe not. Wanting her son to be king, is that really so awful? Don't parents want the best for their children? Okay, you might say, but as Dasarath points out, Rama is wise and dutiful, so why send him to the forest too? Isn't chicken enough? Do you have to have spaghetti as well? That's the king's argument. Your son is going to be king. Isn't that enough? Why should my eldest son, Rama, why should he be out there in the forest facing all those monsters? Rama will support Bharat. He might be useful. He might be a good thing for his success as king. But, as the second wife points out, as long as Rama is around, there will be a question of leadership and that will be bad for her son Bharat. Or it will be tempting for Bharat, who might feel uneasy and do something to harm Rama in order to ensure his own tranquility on the throne. One of the nice touches is that Bharat is not pleased with being the king. Quite the opposite, he begs Rama to stay. Then he goes into the forest and begs him to return. When Rama refuses, Bharat takes his sandals back with him to the kingdom and places Rama's sandals on the throne as a symbol. He, Bharat, will be a placeholder king until the rightful king, Rama, returns. Now, before we leave this story of political intrigue or the love story, let's look at a couple of passages to see how finally this is done. The human elements, the psychology of all the primary characters, are what makes this struggle and these decisions so compelling. Here's the passage where the second wife calls in her two favors. You have promised me the granting of two boons, and you have sworn to it in the name of Rama, your darling son, Rama. And now I'll speak out my mind. If you reject my demand, you'll be the first of the Ikshavu race, proud descendants of the sun god himself, to go back on a promise for the sake of convenience took a breath and demanded, Banish Rama to the forests for 14 years and crown Bharat and celebrate his enthronement with the arrangements you have already made. The king took time to understand the import of this. He got up to his feet muttering, Are you out of your mind or joking or testing me? He moved away from her in search of the couch. He felt faint and blind and groped about for a place to rest. He reclined on the couch and shut his eyes. She went on, Send a messenger to fetch Bharat at once. He is quite far away. Give him time to come back. Tell Rama to take himself away. You are a demon, he whispered with his eyes still shut. Don't curse me, great king. I'm not surprised that you find me less agreeable than Kausalya. Go on, go back to her and enjoy her company. I never asked you to come here and curse me. I retreated here just to avoid you. The night continued in this kind of talk. Dasarat made a last effort at compromise. Very well, as you please. Let Bharat be crowned. But let Rama also stay here. You know him. He will hurt no one. Let Bharat be the king by all means. He is good, but please, I'll touch your feet. I don't mind prostrating before you, but let Rama stay here in his own home and not go away. How can he walk those rough forest paths and go on living in the open, unsheltered? He can. He is not the soft infant you make him out to be. For fourteen years he must live away, wear the bark of trees, eat roots and leaves. You want him to die? Ah! the king screamed. She merely said, don't create a scene. Either you keep your word or you don't, that's all. The night spent itself in dead silence. This is simply brilliant prose, wonderful prose. We're a long way from Gilgamesh here, though it helps to have a modern novelist working at the height of his powers. Much more novelistic than we've seen from our other epics. A wonderful passage where the king closes his eyes and whispers, you are a demon. There's such agony he faces. The drama, the conflict between his values, his need to keep his promise, and his awareness of what it means to keep his promise is just amazing. Would you break your promise if you were the king? If you were the first in your line to ever break a promise, even if it meant sending your son, your beloved firstborn, off into the wilderness? It would take a philosopher like Kant to help us figure this out. And then, here's the passage where Rama accepts the news. Rama arrived, expecting his stepmother to bless him before the ceremonies. At the sight of him, Dasarat cried out, Rama! and lapsed into speechlessness. His appearance and behavior made Rama anxious. Have I done something to upset him? any lapse in my duties or performance? he said, I'll speak on his behalf. He finds it difficult to say it. Your coronation will not take place today. And then she specified in unambiguous terms what she expected of him. She told all about the original vow and the circumstances that led to it. It is your duty to help your father fulfill his promise. Otherwise, he will be damning himself in this and other worlds. You owe him a duty as his son. Rama took in the shock, absorbed it within himself, and said, I will carry out his wishes without question. Mother, be assured that I will not shirk. I have no interest in kingship and no attachments to such offices and no aversion to a forest existence. Fourteen years, she reminded him. Yes, fourteen years. My only regret is that I have not been told this by my father himself. I would have felt honored if he had commanded me directly. Never mind, you can still please him by your action. Now leave at once, and he will feel happy that you have acted without embarrassing him. I want you to assure him that I am not in the least pained by this order. I will take your word as his. Rama saw his father's plight and moved closer. Kaiki said, I will attend to him. Don't waste your time. You must leave without delay. That's his wish. Yes. Yes, I'll do so. I will send a messenger to fetch Bharat without any delay. No, no, said Kaiki. Do not concern yourself with Bharat. I'll arrange everything. You make haste to depart first. She knew Bharat's devotion to Rama, and uncertain as to how he would react, preferred to have Rama well out of the way before Bharat should arrive. I'll take leave of my mother, Kausalya, and leave at once, said Rama. He threw another war, another look at his speechless father and left. When Rama emerged from Dasarat's palace, a crowd was waiting to follow him to the assembly hall. Looking at his face, they found no difference on it, but instead of ascending the chariot waiting for him, he set out on foot in the direction of his mother's palace. They followed him. Rama went up to his mother, Kausalya, she was weak with her fasts and austerities undertaken for the welfare of her son. She had been expecting him to arrive in full regalia, but noted the ordinary silks which he wore and asked, Why are you not dressed yet for the coronation? My father has decided to crown Bharat as the king, Rama said simply. Oh no, but why? Rama said, For my own good, my father has another command. It is for my progress and spiritual welfare. There are a lot of values in place in the, just in these two brief passages, and here I want to talk about how important this story still is because, frankly, these values are a little odd in some ways to modern years. It's easier to do the tri- time traveling we did to ancient Greece and ancient Mesopotamia. You can look through Gilgamesh and Homer and say, well, times were different then, this was a different era. What we're doing now is a kind of anthropology to see how things were so different and how we feel about them now from our 21st century perspective. But you can't always do that with the Ramayana. The Ramayana is still being used, and we need to reckon with that. The writer Pankaj Mishra, in the introduction to the Penguin version that I've been quoting from, tells a story that emphasizes this importance of the Ramayana to modern-day India. It's the story I found simply incredible. It goes, In the summer of 1988, sanitation workers across North India went on strike. Their demand was simple. They wanted the federal government to sponsor more episodes of a television serial based on the Indian epic Ramayana, Romance of Rama. The serial, which had been running on India's state-owned television channel for more than a year, had proved to be an extraordinarily popular phenomenon, with more than 80 million Indians tuning in to every weekly episode. Streets in all towns and cities emptied on Sunday mornings as the serial went on the air. In villages with no electricity, people usually gathered around a rented television set powered by a car battery. Many bathed ritually and garlanded television sets before settling down to watch Rama, the embodiment of righteousness, triumph over adversity. When the government, faced with rising garbage mounds and a growing risk of epidemics, finally relented and commissioned more episodes of the Ramayana, not just the sanitation workers but millions of Indians celebrated. More than a decade and many reruns later, the serial continues to inspire reverence among Indians everywhere and remains for many their primary mode of experiencing India's most popular epic. And then, that's not all. Mishra continues, There's really no Western counterpart in either the Hellenic or Hebraic tradition to the influence that this originally secular story, transmitted orally through many centuries, has exerted over millions of people. The Iliad and the Odyssey are primarily literary texts, but not even Aesop's fables or the often intensely moral Greek myths shape the daily lives of present-day inhabitants of Greece. In contrast, the Ramayana continues to have a profound emotional and psychological resonance for Indians. By invoking the utopian promise of Ramarajya, Kingdom of Rama, Gandhi attracted a large mass of apolitical people to the Indian freedom movement against the British. Post-colonial India may not resemble Ramaraja, but the emotive appeal of Ramayana seems to be undiminished and often vulnerable to political exploitation. In the late 80s and early 90s, the Hindu nationalist movement to build a temple on the alleged birthplace of Rama claimed thousands of lives across India. Now, what are we to make of this? It's one thing for the Iliad to influence ancient Greece. Remember how Plato objected to the way people learned lessons from Homer, the way Homer pervaded and dominated every aspect of the educational system in Plato's day. And it's another thing for a story that's more than 2,000 years old to continue to influence a society the way that Pankaj Mishra asserts that it does. Then we have to look, as we did with Confucius and the Old Testament, to see if the literary qualities have bled over into something more than just literature. Does it impact our political systems as well? Does it continue to influence the way we treat one another? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Here's what's good about the Ramayana having this central role in Indian society. It discusses individual values and choices. It serves them up for us to consider, and it doesn't do so in a a stark black-and-white way, but in a way that's much more rich for our interpretation. Here's how Pankaj Mishra describes the issue. He's talking about hearing the stories of the Ramayana when he's a, a child. And he writes, But it was only later I realized that though there is much of the fairy tale in the Ramayana to engage the child, the prince thrown upon fate, the kidnapped princess, flying monkeys. It also has a complex adult and human aspect. Far from representing a straightforward battle between good and evil, it raises uncomfortable ethical and psychological questions about human motivation. It shows how greed and desire rule human beings and often make them arrogant and prone to self-deception. Even the idealized figure of Rama hints paradoxically at the difficulty of leading an ethical life. Now, if we view the story of Rama's exile that way, that individuals are faced with difficult personal choices and we're asked to consider what are our values, how much do we value obedience, acceptance of one's fate, loyalty, those are all good things for us to consider. Taking a a step back from the story itself and thinking about those issues in connection with our own leadership, the people who are asked to govern us. I can admire a story that puts those before us and makes us think through topics like that. But on the other hand, this is exactly where things falter when we rely on a tale from over 2,000 years ago to tee up these questions for us today. How do you apply the lessons of the Ramayana to democracy? How do our modern views of leadership and governance fit with this view where a kingdom The responsibility of ruling over others is tossed around this lightly. Think about this from the perspective of the governed. So, your second wife has called in a couple of favors, and that's why we don't get the leadership we want? We see this today, even in democracy. One leader cuts a deal with another. I won't run this time, but you back me the next time when I do run. Is that a promise that should be kept, even if it goes against the public public's wishes? The people are clamoring for Rama. Everyone wants Rama, and he refuses the throne out of obedience to his father. Is this what we want from our leaders? We might say, yes, it is, because we want them to be honorable. We value qualities like obedience and loyalty and respect for one's elders, modesty, humility, being able to Stand back when it's time to stand back, not being overly ambitious, not being greedy or seizing power. We saw something like this play out with Al Gore. He won the popular vote, then he deferred honorably when the Supreme Court stepped in. Many believe the Supreme Court ruled politically, ruled inappropriately. And here's Al Gore. Was it really time for him to step aside? Should he have stepped aside did we get the best result that way because he did? Were we better off because of his deference? Do we value his honorable resignation to his fate? Or do we actually view it as a form of cowardice? These are fascinating questions, and I applaud the Ramayana for raising them for us even today. We're going to leave Rama the hero and his, the political intrigue surrounding his exile there He goes off into the forest and fights some battles. And all that is interesting and fun, and it makes for a good read and a good television series, no doubt. He's a heroic warrior and a sympathetic figure, the exiled prince with superhuman strength and many other outstanding qualities. Let's instead return to the second major narrative thread that's initiated at the outset, Rama's love for Sita, and vice versa. They are an idyllic couple, which raises a couple of questions. First, how well is their love portrayed? And second, what does it mean to be an idyllic couple? What does that entail? Here's the passage where they first lay eyes on one another. This happens before the palace intrigue that we described earlier. Rama, the young warrior, has arrived in a city where a festival is occurring. Sita is the princess of this kingdom who catches sight of him without having any idea of who he is. Before we begin, I should mention that later versions of the poem turn Rama into the incarnation of a god, Vishnu, and Sita as well. You'll hear this in the passage. I don't want you to be confused. And actually, why don't we start with Rama entering the town so you can hear the entire description leading up to the moment where they first see one another. This will give you a sense of the kind of vivid details that helps to create the world where the story takes place, which is all to the credit of the Ramayana. Midila, after all the forests, mountain paths, valleys, and places of solitude and silence through which we have traveled thus far, offers a pleasant change to a city of color and pleasure, with people enjoying the business of living. The very minute Rama steps into Midila, he notices golden turrets and domes and towers and colorful flags fluttering in the wind, as if to welcome a royal bridegroom-to-be. The streets glitter with odds and ends of a jewelry cast off by the people, a necklace that had snapped during a dance or a game, or had been flung off when found to be a nuisance during an embrace, which, with no one inclined to pick them up in a society of such affluence. There was no charity in Kozala country, since there was no one to receive it. Torn-off flower garlands lay in heaps on the roadside with honeybees swarming over them. The moose running down the haunches of mountainous elephants flowed in dark streams along the main thoroughfare, blending with the white froth dripping from the mouths of galloping horses and churned with mud and dust by ever-turning chariot wheels. On lofty terraces, women were singing and dancing to the accompaniment of vina and soft drums. Couples on swings, suspended from tall areca poles, enjoyed the delight of swaying back and forth, their necklaces or garlands flying in the air. Rama and Lakshmana went past shops displaying gems, gold, ivory, peacock feathers, beads, and wigs made made of the hair of rare Himalayan deer. They observed arenas where strange elephant fights were in progress, cheered by crowds of young men. Groups of women practicing ballads and love songs under wayside canopies. Horses galloping without a break round and round bridal tracks, watched by elegant men and women. Swimming pools with multicolored fish, agitated by people sporting in the water. They crossed the moat surrounding Janaka's palace, with its golden spires soaring above the other buildings of the city. Now Rama observed on a balcony, Princess Sita playing with her companions. He stood arrested by her beauty, and she noticed him at the same moment. Their eyes met. They had been together not so long ago in Vaikuntha, their original home in heaven, as Vishnu and his spouse Lakshmi. But in their present incarnation, suffering all the limitations of mortals, they looked at each other as strangers. Sita, decked in ornaments and flowers in the midst of her attendants, flashed on his eyes like a streak of lightning. She paused to watch Rama slowly pass out of view, along with his sage-master and brother. The moment he vanished, her mind became uncontrollably, uncontrollably agitated. The eye had admitted a slender shaft of love, which later expanded and spread into her whole being. She felt ill. Observing the sudden change in her and the sudden drooping and withering of her whole being, even the bangles on her wrist slipping down, her attendants took her away and spread a soft bed for her to lie on. She lay tossing in her bed, complaining, You girls have forgotten how to make a soft bed. You are all out to tease me. Her maids and attendants had never seen her in such a mood. They were bewildered and amused at first, but later became genuinely concerned when they noticed tears streaming down her cheeks. They found her prattling involuntarily. Shoulders of emerald, eyes like lotus petals. Who is he? He invaded my heart and has deprived me of all shame. A robber who could ensnare my heart and snatch away my peace of mind. Broad-shouldered, but walked off so swiftly. Why could he not have halted his steps so that I might have gained just one more glimpse and quelled this riotous heart of mine? He was here, he was there next second, and gone forever. He could not be a god, his eyelids flickered. Or was he a sorcerer, casting a spell on people? The sun set beyond the sea, so says the poet. And when a poet mentions a sea, we have to accept it. No harm in letting a poet describe his vision, no need to question his geography. The cry of birds settling down for the night and the sound of waves on the seashore became clearer as the evening advanced into dusk and night. A cool breeze blew from the sea, but none of it comforted Sita. This hour sharpened the agony of love and agitated her heart with hopeless longings. A rare bird known as Anril somewhere called its mate. Normally at this hour, Sita would listen for its melodious warbling, but today its voice sounded harsh and odious. Sita implored, "'Oh, bird!' "'Wherever you may be, please be quiet. "'You are bent upon mischief, "'annoying me with your cries and lamentations. "'The sins I committed in a previous birth "'have assumed your form and come to torture me now.' "'The full moon rose from the sea, "'flooding the earth with its soft light. "'At the sight of it, she covered her eyes with her palms. "'She felt that all the elements were alien to her mood "'and combining to aggravate her suffering. "'Her maids noticed her distress and feared that some deep-rooted ailment had suddenly seized her. They lit cool lamps, whose wicks were fed with clarified butter, but found that even such a flame proved intolerable to her. And they extinguished the lamps, and in their place kept luminous gems, which emanated soft light. They made her a soft bed on a slab of moonstone, with layers of soft petals. But the flowers wilted. she wreathed and groaned and complained of everything. The night, stars, moonlight and flowers, a whole universe of unsympathetic elements. The question went on drumming in her mind. Who is he? Where is he gone? Flashing into view and gone again, or am I subject to a hallucination? It could not be so. A mere hallucination cannot weaken one so much. At the guest house, Rama retired for the night. In the seclusion of his bedroom, he began to brood over the girl he had noticed on the palace balcony. For him, too, the moon seemed to emphasize his sense of loneliness. Although he had exhibited no sign of it, deeply within he felt a disturbance. His innate sense of discipline and propriety had made him conceal his feelings before other people. Now he kept thinking of the girl on the balcony and longed for another sight of her. Who could she be? Nothing to indicate that she was a princess, could be anyone among the hundreds of girls in a palace. She could not be married. Rama realized that if she were married, he would have instinctively have recoiled from her. Now he caught himself contemplating her in every detail. He fancied that she was standing before him and longed to enclose those breasts in his embrace. He said to himself, Even if I cannot take her in my arms, shall I ever get another glimpse, however briefly, of that radiant face and those lips? Eyes, lips, those curly locks falling on the forehead. Every item of those features seemingly poised to attack and quell me. Me, on whose bow depended the destruction of demons, now at the mercy of the god of love, who wields only a bow of sugarcane and uses flowers for arrows. He smiled at the irony of it. The night spent itself. He had little sleep. The moon set and the dawn came. Rama found that it was time to arise and prepare himself to accompany his master to the ceremony at Janaka's palace. And there we have it. How beautiful is that? It's like Romeo and Juliet meeting for the first time when a perfect sonnet forms out of their lines in Shakespeare's play. And with a balcony in the center of it, just like Romeo and Juliet, who among us doesn't love a good balcony? There should be more balconies around. Also, more princesses and heroes. Oh, I'm happy with turning things around. We could have a guy in a balcony, and a heroic young woman could be walking past for all I care. I just like rooms with balconies, and I like standing on balconies looking down at the street, and I like the idea of young lovers on the street looking up and catching glimpses of their true love in balconies, and I like the idea of those young lovers staring down at the street dreamily, catching a glimpse of one's true love below. Three cheers for balconies. Four cheers, even. Okay, back to the story. Here's another beautiful passage where Sita's father, the king, Janaka, has set a task to find a husband for his daughter. This is the bow I mentioned before, the bow that no one else is strong enough to lift. Listen to the description of Rama attempting the task and Sita's response. The bow was placed in a carriage on eight pairs of wheels, and arrived drawn by a vast number of men. During its passage from its shed through the streets, a crowd followed it. It was so huge that no one could comprehend it at one glance. Is this a bow, or that mountain called Meru, which churned the ocean of milk in ancient times? People marveled. What target is there to receive the arrow shot out of this bow, even if someone lifts and strings it, wondered some. If Janaka meant seriously to find a son-in-law, he should have waived this condition. How unwise of him. Rama looked at his master. Viswamitra nodded as if to say, Try it. As Rama approached the bow with slow dignity, the onlookers held their breath and watched. Some prayed silently for him. Some commented, How cruel! This supposed sage is not ashamed to put the delicate, marvelous youth to this harsh trial. The king is perverse and cruel to place this godlike youth in this predicament. If he was serious about it, he should have just placed Sita's hand in his instead of demanding this acrobatic feat. The king's aim is to keep Sita with him forever. This is one way of never facing separation. If this man fails, we will all jump into fire, commented some young women who were love-stricken at the sight of Rama. If he fails, Sita is sure to immolate herself, and we will all follow her example. While they were speculating thus, Rama approached the bow. Some of the onlookers, unable to bear the suspense, closed their eyes and prayed for his success, saying, if he fails to bring the ends of this bow together, what is to happen to the maiden? What they missed, because they had shut their eyes, was to note how swiftly Rama picked up the bow, tugged the string taut, and brought the tips together. They were startled when they heard a deafening report caused by the cracking of the bow at its arch, which could not stand the pressure of Rama's grip. The atmosphere was suddenly relaxed. The gods showered down flowers and blessings. Clouds parted and precipitated rains. The oceans tossed up in the air all the rare treasures from their depths. The sages cried, Janaka's tribulations and trials are ended. Music filled the air. The citizens garlanded embraced and anointed each other with perfumes and sprinkled sandalwood powder in the air. People donned their best clothes, gathered at the palace gates and public squares, and danced and sang without any restraint. Flutes and pipes and drums created a din over the loud chants and songs from many throats. Gods and goddesses watching the happy scenes below assumed human form, mixed with the crowds, and shared their joy. The beauty of our royal bridegroom can never be fully grasped unless one is blessed with a thousand eyes, commented the women. See his brother, how very handsome. Blessed parents to have begotten such sons. Sita had secluded herself and was unaware of the latest development. She moved from bed to bed for lack of comfort and lay beside a fountain on a slab of moonstone, the coolest bed they could find her. Even there, she had no peace since the lotus blooms in the pool of the fountain teased her mind by reminding her of the shape of his eyes or his complexion. She grumbled, no peace anywhere. I am deserted. My mind tortures me with reminders. What use are they if I can't even know where to look for him? What sort of a man can he be to cause all this torment and just pass on doing nothing to alleviate it? A regal appearance, but actually practicing sorcery. Her tortuous reflections were interrupted by the arrival of a maid. Instead of bowing and saluting her mistress, as was normal, she pirouetted around, singing snatches of a love song. Sita sat up and commanded, Be quiet! Are you intoxicated? The maid answered, The whole country is intoxicated! How would you know, my good mistress, if you lock yourself in and mope and moan? She went on to explain, in a rush of incoherence, The king of Ayodhya! Son! broad-shouldered, and a god on earth. No one saw it happen. He was so quick and swift. But he pressed, so they say, one end with his feet, and seized the other end with his hand, and drew the string, and oh! Oh, intoxicated beauty, what are you saying? When Sita understood what had happened, she stood up, her breasts heaving. She held herself erect as she said, Do you know if this is the same man who struck me down with a look as he passed along the street? If it is someone else. I will end my life. There we go. Aren't we rooting for these two lovers? Their love and loyalty and strength. They belong together, ruling somewhere, don't they? And there are good things about that, of course. Comes with some negatives. If we imagine this in the modern day, if we bring it up to speed to where we are today, we chafe at the idea today that a princess or any woman, is a prize to be offered up in one. We can admire the role that true love plays in this, but that still doesn't change what's happening here. A daughter is given away by a father. Her wishes, in this case, just happen to come true, but that's just lucky. If the guy holding the bow was some idiot, she'd have been in suicidal despair. Where's the agency for this woman there? That's the the way we look at this today hard to credit this as a good story for modern times, and it gets worse. This is a love story with some horribly modern aspects, including extreme jealousy and frankly murderous overtones. Rama looks like a very flawed male. Sita is true and pure and saintly, and that's all to her credit, but the relationship between her and Rama is problematic to say the least. As the love story continues, there's a part that's so disturbing that our translator, Narayan, makes a fascinating and revealing choice. I think he cannot bear this part of the story. It was simply too much for him to see his hero, the hero of the the story that he was translating, to see the hero act this way. Let me explain. During the 14-year period of Rama's exile in the forest, Sita winds up being stolen away by a kind of ogre, a demon king with 10 heads named Ravana, who's stolen out of revenge after Ravana's sister falls in love with Rama and is jealous of his love for Sita. Rama goes on a quest to rescue Sita. He's helped by his loyal stepbrother, Lakshmana, and a monkey general of a monkey army, Hanuman. Yes, (laughs) that's there. It's a shame we're skipping over all this quickly, but we can't cover all these riches in an hour, so we need to keep moving. So Rama rescues his beloved Sita, And now 14 years have passed, so they return to Ayodhya, where the people can't wait to be ruled by them. But Rama now questions Sita's chastity. She lived with Ravana for years. He can't accept that she remained faithful during all that time. Or even if she had, he is thinking of appearances. He's got issues with the fact that she lived with Ravana as his captive for so many years. Others might think she's been unfaithful, and he can't have that either. Now, what kind of Romeo is this? Blaming her for being stolen? You can see where the values are on this, where things are going askew here from a modern-day perspective. This part is extremely moral and preachy, and there's far too much emphasis on purity and chastity for me. I don't want young women out there being slut-shamed, and I don't want my heroes to be the ones doing it. I want my heroes to be enlightened. I want them to trust women to make choices, and to treat them as grown-ups, as individuals with complicated histories. Love should transcend this kind of thing. Sita has been faithful, but is that good enough for Rama? No. And here's where the translator backs down from the ugliest side of Rama's character. Here's how the passage is supposed to read. In this version that the translator is following, Rama says this to Sita. You stayed content in that sinner's city enjoying your food and drink your good name was gone but you refused to die how dared you think i'd be glad to have you back that's regrettably harsh and it's an awful lesson for us today sita a victim of a kidnapping is supposed to what die out of shame because she has soiled rama's reputation the translator goes to another version instead and inserts a milder version of this passage Let me read it for you here. This is the version that the translator has chosen in order to back away from the harshness of Rama. Rama remained brooding for a while and suddenly said, My task is done. I have now freed you. I have fulfilled my mission. All this effort has been not to attain personal satisfaction for you or me. It was to vindicate the honor of the Ikshavu race and to honor our ancestors' codes and values. After all this, I must tell you that it is not customary to admit back to the normal married fold, a woman who has resided all alone in a stranger's house. There can be no question of our living together again. I leave you free to go where you please, and to choose any place to live in. I do not restrict you in any manner. Now, that's a little better, maybe. Rama seems to be following convention, He seems a little bit generous with how he's treating Sita. But Sita's reaction, while admirable in some ways, in the context of the story, certainly seems admirable. But Frankly, it's pretty destructive as a role model for how we want to live. On hearing this, Sita broke down. My trials are not ended yet, she cried. I thought with your victory all our troubles were at an end. So be it. He beckoned to Lakshmana and ordered, Light a fire at once on this very spot. Lakshmana hesitated and looked at his brother, wondering whether he would countermand the order. But Rama seemed passive and acquiescent. Lakshmana, ever the most unquestioning deputy, gathered sticks and got ready a roaring pyre within a short time. The entire crowd watched the proceedings, stunned by the turn of events. The flames rose to the height of a tree, Still, Rama made no comment. He watched. Sita approached the fire, prostrated herself before it and said, O oh, agni great god of fire, be my witness. She jumped into the fire. From the heart of the flame rose the god of fire bearing Sita and presented her to Rama with words of blessing. Rama, now satisfied that he had established his wife's integrity in the presence of the world, welcomed Sita back to his arms trial by fire trial literally trial by fire this is just horrifying a woman proves her chastity by walking into a fire just so that man can comfort himself that he has proven her chastity to the world that others will believe it this is ugly and brutal And if I could imagine that it was just from another time, then fine. I'll read it that way and reflect on how we've overcome it, how we've moved into the modern day world. But that's my concern. Here's what I'm worried about. If people are reading it today and marveling at the values it demonstrates and admiring Sita and Rama and viewing them as examples that they want their children to live up to. Look, this is an influential poem all over Asia. That's why I called it a living epic. It's not just India. There are versions of it in Thailand, in Indonesia, in Cambodia, in Malaysia. Now we can praise it for its castless heroes, although it's not quite as castless as one might think. Rama's not a Brahmin, and that's a good thing. But there are passages here where people are designated to their own station and not allowed beyond it. That's not as good. But even more, what kind of a message does it send to have a woman suspected of infidelity need to walk into fire to prove her virtue. Now, this isn't quite the same thing as bride burning or dowry death. You've heard of that. In bride burning, the woman is burned because her family is not paid enough for taking her on to the new family. The dowry is too low. Pay more or she'll be killed. Bride burning happened once per hour in 2012. And that's, those are just what was reported, with many more that were suspected to have occurred and, and designated as an accident or suicide. That's a horrifying statistic and a horrifying practice. That's not quite what's happening here, but it's close enough to make me uncomfortable. Does an unchaste bride face trial by fire or is equivalent today? Let's keep the hatred and anger and jealousy out of our love stories. Let's practice our sense of forgiveness and acceptance, and equality, and love, and respect, and dignity. I'd like to see that from our literature. I'd like to see that being the story that's told to children at night before they go to sleep. I'm not going to exactly blame the Ramayana for its values because it's literature, and literature is here to challenge us and make us think. We don't blindly accept. That's not our job as readers. We engage and resist. That's our job. Literature should serve to raise our awareness so we can admire what we admire and reject what should be rejected. And the Ramayana is an important story, a dramatic and influential story. And like all great works of literature, it's one to be reckoned with, not one to be ignored. That's it for this week's History of Literature episode. Next time, we'll jump to the other great epic from India, the Mahabharata, and in particular, the great stretch of philosophy within that tale known as the Bhagavad Gita. In the meantime, please feel free to subscribe to our podcast, and if you're feeling especially generous with your time, take a second or two to leave us a rating on iTunes or wherever you like to get your podcasts. It's just a click away, and it would help us have some good karma. You can reach us at Jack Wilson Author at gmail.com. That's J A C K E Wilson Author at gmail.com. Or find more at Jack or History of Literature.com. We love getting feedback, even if you're merely pointing out mistakes or offering other constructive criticism. And the little notes of praise or the requests for future episodes are much appreciated. Much appreciated. Who am I kidding? They are much loved. Thank you, as always, for listening. I'm Jack Wilson. We'll see you next time.